If this is your first time all semester, we've been looking at the life of Abraham from the book of Genesis. Um, and Abraham is sort of these, he's this watershed figure in human history and, and particularly, of course, in the Bible. Um, and God has been making these promises to Abraham that he's going to use Abraham to, tra- to change the whole world. He's going to transform the globe and every nation uh, through the, the life of Abraham. And uh, he's promised him all along that he's going to have all these offspring, these children that are going to come from him. And he's sterile for years and years. He finally has a son, and then here we're sort of at the climax of the Abraham story. We're not going to read about his death. Uh, that comes a couple chapters later, but this is sort of the pinnacle of his life. And it's a long story, but pay close attention to it as we read it, um, and then we'll jump in. After these things, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back to you again. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time from heaven. And he said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this, and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Let me pray, and we'll uh, dive into this. Lord God, we pray that you would be with us tonight, that you would speak, um, that you would, you've been with us all year um, in so many ways. Uh, would, you, would you do it again tonight? Uh, would you be with us and would you speak to us and give us your strength and your power? We pray this in your name. Amen. So my pastor in college, his name was Joe, and uh, he told us a story once about how when he was in high school, he was training to be a lifeguard. And uh, he basically had the idea that like he's going to be a lifeguard all summer, he's going to sit by the pool work on his tan, flex his muscles, wear his Ray-Bans, and maybe pick up some ladies. Like, that was like, this sounded like a cush job. 
And so he went through the lifeguard training all throughout. And uh, there was a young woman uh, whose name was Ellen, who was his teacher, his lifeguard instructor. And to pass the test, the, the, to become a lifeguard, there was this final test, and you had to save someone. And she said, Joe, Ellen, and Ellen, he said she was kind of short and petite, and he's, he's a bigger guy. And uh, she said, Joe, you're going to save me. And he's like, okay. You know, and so she dives in to the middle of the pool, and then he goes in to save her. And as soon as he gets to her and puts a hand on her, he said, uh, Ellen just turned into like a wildcat in the water. Like It was just like scratching and clawing and pulling his hair and punching him and twisting him and just fighting him uh, with all of her force. And he was finally able to kind of get his arms around her, uh, got to the side of the pool. He said he was bleeding uh, from how much she was just thrashing and attacking him. And he got to the edge of the water. They're both out of breath. And he said, you know, what is wrong with you? <laughs> you know, uh, and she shouted in his face, no, what is wrong with you? You came here to pick up women, but you're supposed to be here to save people's lives. Wake up. You're a lifeguard. He said he, he saved 12 people that summer. And so the, the point of that test that she gave him was, it, so we think about tests, you got your finals coming up. We think about tests as this thing that, are, that measure what we know. They sort of measure where we're at or they show us kind of where we stand. Um, but Ellen's test and uh, God's test here, it says God tested Abraham. Uh, the kind of test that Ellen did, the kind of test that God does, when the Bible uses the word, talks about us being tested by God, it's not a test just to measure where you're at. It's a test that actually changes you. That test transformed Joe into a lifeguard that could save lives. Um, and God's test here for Abraham is something that's actually transformative. It teaches him something. It creates something into, in him. So we're going to look at this test. God, it says, the verse 1 says that God tested Abraham and said to him, uh, and that's how the it's introduced. So we're going to look at the test that God gives. Uh, and first we're going to ask the question, what is it that God asks? What is it that God commands of Abraham? What does he ask of him? Um, and the answer is, uh, you've, it's a fairly famous story, even if you're not super familiar with the Bible. Um, he asks him to sacrifice his son. Which is crazy. That's wild in and of itself. But there's something really interesting uh, about this story to me. And um, in that um, the author of the text could have told it very simply. Like God said, Abraham, go sacrifice your son. Abraham obeyed him and went to do it. And then the last second, God said, wait, don't. Here's a ram instead. Like the story could be three sentences long. But it's not. It goes on and on. And um, there's something really interesting. I think the author wants us to go deeper into it. The, the, the author is actually inviting us into the moment. He's telling us a story as a good storyteller. And he wants us to feel it. And you see that in his word choice, in his use of repetition, the pacing and the details. And we'll unpack some of those. Uh, first, uh, just sort of some repetition of key terms. You want to look for that as you're reading, particularly in the Old Testament, but also in the New. Um, his word choice here, in verse 2, it says, Your son, take your son. And then the original word order would be, Your son, your only one, the one that you love, Isaac, and go to the mountain that I will show you. And it's actually a, an intentional echo of God's original command to Abraham that we looked at back in January in chapter 12, where God says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And both times he's asked him to give up something tremendous and then said, I'll show you when you get there. Um, and throughout the story, he's been promised this child and he finally has this son. 
Um, and when he says in verse 5, the boy and I are going to go worship, it's really better translated. We don't really have a word for this in English, the intermediate stage between like boy and man. Uh, my son Benjamin turned 11 today. In the Bible, Benjamin would still be a boy. A lad, the word that's used here that's translated boy, is more like a teenager. Um, he's, uh, Isaac was probably somewhere between 15 and 18 years old at this point. But uh, again, with the, the phrasing, he says, you know, take your son. That in this time, like your son is your legacy. He's the, he's the, the way that uh, Abraham's name is going to be carried on, that he'll be remembered. You're only one. He's unique. Uh, he's special. He's the, been the one he's been longing for. The one that you love. Like if Abraham doesn't know who he's talking about, you know, get your son. Wait, which one? Your only one? <laughs> the one that you love? <laughs> oh, that one. Okay. Um, Isaac, whose name means laughter. Uh, the promised one. Um, and then again with the phrasing, it, where if you notice where God keeps saying to Abraham, your son, your son, your son, and then when Abraham talks, he says, my son, either your son or my son, is repeated in 14 verses, it's repeated 10 times. Um, it's just, we know who you're talking about, author, but he keeps saying it over and over. And then as they're walking along, and Isaac says, my father, and I'll, Pretty much all the commentators agree that he's not just saying, like, hey, dad, that that phrase, my father, like to say he's calling him daddy is taking it too far, but it's a term of endearment. It's a term of affection where he's saying, hey, father. Uh, and then Abraham responds in kind, here I am, my son. Uh, it, it's drawing out our emotions. That's what the text is trying to do to us. Uh, several years ago, um, an author named Michael Gershon uh, wrote an op-ed piece in the Washington Post uh, about uh, six weeks after he had dropped his son off for college for the first time. I want to read it to you. Um, and he talked about how in ancient cultures you would send your son to go be an apprentice, uh, like in middle school, teenage years, it kind of separate you a little bit. And he says uh, this about past cultures doing that. He says this, Fat lot did our ancestors know. Eighteen years It's my son's birthday, so I'm just saying. 18 years is not enough. A crib is bought. Christmas trees get picked out. There's the park and lullabies and a little help with homework. And the days pass uncounted until they end. The adjustment is traumatic. My son is on the quiet side, observant, thoughtful, a practitioner of companionable silence. I'm now learning how empty the silence can be. I know this is hard on him as well. He will be homesick, as I was intensely as a freshman. An education expert once told me that among the greatest fears of college students is that they won't have a room at home to return to. They want to keep a beachhead in their former life. But with due respect to my son's feelings, I have the worst of it. I know something he doesn't. Not quite a secret, but incomprehensible to the young. He is experiencing the adjustments that come with beginnings. His life is starting for real, but I have begun the long letting go. Put another way, he has a wonderful future in which my part naturally diminishes, but I have no possible future that is better without him close. <laughs> She's going to rip out. She want to call your mom right now. I love you, mom. Uh, I miss you too. Um, it's gut-wrenching. Uh, 
give you a little empathy for your parents maybe. But that's what the text is doing to us. The text is drawing us in saying, this is, this is Abraham's son whom he loves. And he's not dropping him off at college. God is saying, kill him for me. Uh, text me about that. But he's, he's building the emotions with his word choice, but the text also builds drama in its pacing. Um, there's the details, the pacing and the details here. Um, the, if you're writing on you know, animal skin or parchment, uh, you're going to have a certain economy of words. You don't, have, you, don't, you don't get to waste a lot of phrases, but he's including all these little details. Like, why are we watching Abraham chop the wood? Because it's ominous. He's splitting the wood before he leaves. And then there's the three-day journey. And then he, you, we see him loading the wood onto the donkey. And then he's having a conversation with his helpers. Then he's piling the wood on top of his son for the, for the journey. Then he's arranging the wood orderly on the altar. Uh, and then he's, you know, he's got the knife and the fire in his hand. And there's this conversation back and forth. And then finally, it gets so detailed, it slows down to almost slow motion where it says, uh, Abraham reached out his arm to grab the knife. And as he is raising his arm, it it doesn't just say to kill his son, it says to slaughter him. Which again, it's an important word choice. If if you're a hunter, or if you know hunters, and you've ever killed a deer and then cleaned it, this is step one of cleaning a deer, is what that word means. It's gruesome. It's graphic. It's intense. Um, Some of you have lost someone near to you. You've experienced death of a person that you love and that you care for. I have as well. Um, um, But never a child. Uh, When Naomi was born, my oldest, uh, the day she was born, she came out blue. And they're supposed to be blue. I've been warned. They're going to be blue. But then they're supposed to turn pink. But she didn't turn pink. And they're supposed to cry out with their breath, but she didn't cry out. She made the face of a scream but there was no noise coming out. And for a moment, people, the doctors and the nurse were kind of watching, and then Dawn was holding her for a moment, and then the nurses got concerned, and then they sort of swept her out of Dawn's arms and took her out of the room and didn't really tell us anything, so we're just sitting there. And then a little bit later, she was put in an oxygen tent. They're trying to get some, you know, she wasn't breathing, so they wanted to get air to her. Then they intubated her and had her on a ventilating machine, uh, and then they said, Dad, you need to get an ambulance with us. We're going to the NICU down in Norfolk. And Dawn, of course, had just given birth and couldn't come with us. So she's left alone. And I jump in the ambulance, and we drive down to Norfolk. And I'm sitting in the jump seat watching my daughter in a plastic box on a ventilator. And then we finally get to the hospital, and we go down the hallway, and we get into the NICU, and then they, these two double doors open. And the attendant said, Dad, go in this room over here and wait. And the doors swung shut. And I had no idea what was going on. She's fine. Many of you have met her. It worked out well. It was, a, um, it was um, she's quite healthy. Um, but th- for those few hours, I had no idea what was going to happen. And I have very dear friends who those doors swung shut for them and never really opened again. One of my college roommates held his child in his arms as he breathed his last breath right after birth. It happens, and it's excruciating, and um, it's a lot of pain. And as you read this story, you're like, God has been promising Abraham this one thing his whole life. Like, what is he doing? Why would he ask this of him? Why would he give him this kind of test? 
Um, I don't think any of you have children. Um, but what do you treasure most? What is the most important uh, thing to you? It might be a person, a relationship, some sort of achievement you want to have or you've already had, your beauty, your health, something about you that you treasure most. And there's this great mystery in the Bible, and we see it in this passage, that God loves us too much to let those treasures become our gods. He loved Abraham too much to let Isaac become his savior, his functional savior. Um, now, we aren't Abraham. This is a, he has a very unique role in human history. We don't get this explicit kind of test. If you get a voice in the night telling you to kill someone, let's talk, um, and let's get some, some help. Um, he was unique, but it, the, the text still shows us this principle about God, that God can ask anything of us. And what does God ask in his test? He can ask for uh, anything. Um, quick sidebar, uh, my birthday was a few weeks ago, and I got, for my birthday, a Nintendo Switch um, for my 40th birthday. I'm a grown man. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> What was funny is my, it was kind of going to be a little bit of a joke. Like I, like I had said, like, that would be kind of cool. And so I opened it. And so my two sons, who are uh, one's now 11 as of today, and the other's 8. And they're like looking at it like, wait, what? Like, that's, what that's what we were supposed to And they put it together like, oh, dad got his birthday present for us. Right? And um, they were playing it. And my son, Benjamin, is a really thoughtful kid. He was like, you know, it's, it's pretty cool that you made your birthday present, like something for us. And then he goes, but... You know, actually, when you think about it, even the thing that I got for you, basically you bought because it's your money. Like, I went to the store and I picked it out, but basically you bought it for yourself, so really even that came from you, <laughs> you know, like. Um, and uh, I thought it was a really funny thing. I was like, yeah, that's like everything that we have is on loan from our dad, right? He gave it to us in the first place. He has the right to ask uh, anything from us because he gave everything to us, um, I, there's a book that I go back to uh, every few years. It's called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by uh, Pete Scazzaro. He's a pastor in New York. It's a wonderful book. But he talks about this moment that most of us uh, hit. He says, you know, the vast majority of people have some moment in their life where they hit what he calls the wall. And the wall might be the news that you have cancer. The, the, the wall might be uh, that you flunk out of school. The wall might be that you're getting divorced or that your parents got divorced. It's some moment of crisis where you realize, like, Things are just not going the way that I plan, and this is difficult. And he says that when you hit the wall, you have to learn five things. And there are five things that I very much agree with, and without which this text makes no sense. Here are the five things. You ready? Uh, number one, life is hard. Life is hard. Um, I read a great article once that said that happiness, a formula for happiness, happiness equals Reality minus expectations. <laughs> Happiness equals reality. If your expectations are larger than reality, you are unhappy. <laughs> That's how the formula works. Because life is hard. Expect life to be hard. Uh, number two, you are not that important. You are not that important. Number three, your life is not about you. If we think we're center stage in the story Pete Scazzaro says, no, our, your life, Ben, is not actually about you. And number four, even if life were easy and you were really important and your life was about you, number four, you are not in control. You are not in control. If you evaluate your life and you realize how few things you are actually in control of, starting with your very existence, like none of us chose to be born. None of us chose our parents. None of us chose to be raised where we 
uh, were raised. We are not in control. And then number five, you are going to die. So, thanks for being around all semester. Um, it's a lovely night tonight. It's a little uplifting. Uh, thanks, Pete Scazzaro. You were going to die. Um, but, but he's right. Um, and I actually think uh, understanding and facing these things is actually incredibly uh, liberating. And we see them here in this, this passage, the sense of which we are small and we are not in control. So Abraham is given this magnificent, huge task. And he passes the task. Like, he, he gets through it. It's pretty incredible. But how did he pass? And then how can we pass the tests that we face and when we reach our walls? Um, because this text, the answer to that is because this text is not just about what God asks, but it's more about what God gives. It's about what God asks, but it's about what God gives. And he gives a lot in this passage. We'll run through them quickly because we're low on time. Uh, first, he gives him the ram. He gives him the ram. Uh, all semester, I've, I've mentioned this several times, that the, a way to think about the Old Testament is you have an acorn that grows into an oak tree that you see fulfilled, the oak tree in the New Testament. And here, the ram is one of those little acorns. In verse 13, it says that he sacrificed the ram instead of his son. Uh, the word for that would be that this ram is a substitutionary sacrifice, a sacrifice in the place, the substitute for his son. So the key figure, the watershed figure, the person from whom the entire Old Testament flows out of. At the key moment of his life, we see a substitutionary sacrifice. At the climax of his life. And at the climax of human history, we see Jesus as a substitutionary sacrifice, there to take away the sins of the world. As John said of him, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the Ram, and God gives us him. Second, Jesus is the Ram, but Jesus is also the Son, and God gives the Son. And he says to Abraham here after he passes the test, because you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Romans 8 says this, he, God, who did not spare his own son. It's intentionally echoing the language from this passage where you see a willing father willingly giving his son and God says, I am ultimately that willing father who gives that son. And, but it's not just that the father is willingly giving his son, but also Isaac. Isaac's willingness to go... Um, Here's the thing, uh, Abraham at this point is somewhere between 115 and 120 years old. Isaac's a teenager, 16, 17. Who wins that wrestling match when Isaac figures out what's going on? And here's the thing, where he's, as they're walking along, most commentators agree that when Isaac is like, uh, my father, I see the knife and the fire and the wood that's on me. Where's the, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? Like, what's going on here? Uh, that we're supposed to read into that, that he knows what's going on. Like, he's figuring it out as they walk together. And lest you think I'm, like, the Christian interpreter shoving that in, Robert Alter, who is a, a Jewish Hebrew professor uh, out at Berkeley, in his commentary says the same thing, that Isaac knew what was up. He had figured out the gig and that he's going willingly with his father. And Jesus, in the garden, asks his father questions. Jesus, in a garden, the night before he's killed, he says, Abba, Father, my Father, will you please take this cup from me? He knows what's going on, and he's asking his father, what's going on here? Where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And then Jesus, God, doesn't take the cup away. He says, nevertheless, not my wills, but yours be done. And Abraham says to his son, God himself will provide the lamb. The third, he gives the seed, or it, here it's translated offspring. This interesting thing happens here at the end of the text. It talks about offspring, and the word for offspring can be singular or plural. 
And so at first it's talking about the offspring, the seed, as a multitude, the sand of the seashore and the stars in the sky. It's like thousands of people that you're thinking about, millions even. And, um, but then it says this, your offspring shall possess the gate of his, singular, enemies. Your offspring, singular, will possess the gate of his enemies. And Paul makes a huge deal about that being singular in the book of Galatians. Uh, how does Jesus possess the gate of his enemies? Jesus is that ultimate offspring, that ultimate descendant of Abraham. Uh, he, he possesses the gates of his enemy in his resurrection. Uh, the New Testament says that the last enemy to be conquered is death. It's also in Harry Potter. last enemy to be conquered is death, but it came here first. The last enemy to be conquered is death. And Jesus said, where it says the gates of his enemies, Jesus said that the, the gates of hell will not prevail against the kingdom of God. And you think about, we think about the gates of hell will not prevail. There's this idea of like, okay, like hell's coming after us, but they won't prevail over us. But if you think about the gates of a fortress, the gates are things that you attack. Gates don't attack things. Gates are attacked. And Jesus is saying, I have come through my resurrection to storm the gates of hell. And God told Abraham, your offspring will possess the gates of his enemy. And through his resurrection, Jesus has stormed the gates of hell and invited us to join with him in his kingdom. And then finally, uh, there's the mountain. God gives the mountain. Again, the acorn, as it's growing, these, all these threads that are being tied together here. Uh, later, it grows into a sapling, and King Solomon builds a temple. And guess where he builds the temple? On this mountain. Same place that Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac. And the tradition was that the Holy of Holies, the centerpiece of the temple, the holiest place on earth where the, sins of, uh, the sacrifice of atonement was made for all the people once a year, the tradition was that it was at the exact spot where Abraham uh, had this event happen in, in Genesis 22 at Mount Moriah. Um, and the temple is this place. It's a place where sacrifice is made for sins of the people. And it's also the special dwelling place of God. And then Jesus comes along and he says, tear down this temple and in three days I will build it again. And he's not talking about the temple that he's standing next to that had already been torn down once and will be torn down later. He says, the text says he's talking about his body. That Jesus is the temple. He is the special dwelling place of God. He is the holy of holies. And he is the place of sacrifice. And then, fast-forwarding more, as the tree grows bigger and bigger, in Revelation, where John is describing the new heavens and the new earth, or what we call heaven, he says this, I saw no temple there, for the temple there is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. That in heaven, the very, the, there is not a temple anymore, because God dwells with his people uh, throughout the whole earth, the whole new earth. And Jesus is that Lamb. He's... He's the ram, he's the sun, he's the seed, he's the mountain. So how do we pass the test? These are the things that God has given to you and has given to me. How do we pass the test? How did Abraham pass the test? Um, we pass it like, be like Abraham. Like, try harder, be faithful, obey. Yes, those are all true. But here's, a, here's the key. How did Abraham pass the test? What did he name the mountain? He didn't, he didn't name the mountain, I succeeded, I obeyed, I did my job, I was faithful. He names the mountain, the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. That we pass the test by God's provision for us. That's how we get through his test, and that's how his tests change us. Um, this, 
as we're talking about how God can ask anything of you, um, this is something we all have to wrestle with. Uh, the question of what kind of God is worth giving everything for? What kind of God is worth the kind of sacrifice that he is asking of Abraham and of, of us in our lives? Um, my wife and I used to live in St. Louis, um, and about 25 years ago, uh, this, this happened uh, in St. Louis, and the, um, the Mississippi River runs along uh, beside St. Louis, and they um, send, like, boats have to get up and down, like, they, we still, like, ship things on boats up rivers, do you know that? That's how we get some of our stuff from Amazon or whatever, and so they got to keep it clear, and so silt builds up, like, it runs downstream and around St. Louis, they've got to dredge the silt from the bottom of the river up onto the side, and they send these big things that, like, spray it up. So this piles of wet silt pile up on the side of the riverbanks. And then in the summer, especially when it's hot, they dry out on top. And it forms this hard crust, almost like concrete, and these massive mounds. Um, and uh, what will happen is the hard crust will form on top, and then the wet sand underneath is still there, and it will kind of rinse it out. It'll slide back into the river, and so there are these cavities inside these massive mounds. Well, about 20, 20, 25 years ago, two brothers are about my son's age now, about 12 and 8, 11, my sons are 11 and 8. They went off together to play. They went to play on the riverside. Um, and there were warnings about, like, don't play on the silt mounds. Um, but they didn't come home, and so they sent out search parties. Uh, and people were out there with flashlights trying to find them. And eventually they found the younger brother, about 8 years old. And he's buried up to his neck in one of these mounds. And they find him, and they kind of, he's passed out from exhaustion and the, the weight on his chest. And they dig him out a little bit, and they revive him. And then they say, where is your brother? And he said, I'm standing on his shoulders. So what had happened, the two had gone to play, and the cavity had broken open. And as, this, as the, the pit collapsed and then the sand started pouring in, the older brother jumped in after his younger brother and picked him up onto his shoulders as the sand caved in around him and buried him alive. Um, what, God, what kind of God is worth giving everything up for? Like Christianity has a God that is just like that big brother for you and for me. Who, who gives up everything for you. The only God that's worth giving everything up for is a God that has given everything for you. My friend, a uh, friend of mine, Rob Wooten, talks about God's testing here and the meaning of this word test. He says, God tests us not so that we can show ourselves first and foremost faithful to him, but that he can show himself faithful to us. Not that we show ourselves faithful to him, but that he can prove himself faithful to us. And that is how we pass the test. The New Testament says that looking ahead to the resurrection, Abraham believed God and considered that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead. Jesus says, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. He is worth it. He is worth your whole life and all of your treasures because he is faithful to you and he will provide. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we thank you that you are um, a gracious and giving and loving God, um, that you are worthy of all of our praise and our adoration in our whole lives. We pray that we would be people that look like we believe in a God like you. And we pray that you would continue to provide for us, give us perseverance 
through our struggles and our trials and our tests. We pray this in your name. Amen.